You may be seated. And I invite you to turn first to Judges chapter 3, verse 31. This evening, I'm going to jump around to a few different texts in Judges. I've been trying to decide how I handle the the six so-called minor judges, the ones we're just not given a lot of information on, and so I decided I will take them all together. So we are first going to be hearing from Judges 3, verse 31, then we will jump over to chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and finally we will move over to chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. But before we hear God's word to us this evening, let us ask once again for his help. Father, I ask that as I preach and as we hear your word, that the name of Christ would be exalted. For his is the name above every name. And his is the only name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. So we pray that we would hear and know the name of Jesus, and we would find our joy, our hope, and our peace. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. First, we are in Judges chapter 3, verse 31. We read, after him, that's after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Then move over to chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And we read, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in, at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. And then move over finally to chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. After him, that's after Jephthah, Ibzin of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzin died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirithonite judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. This too is the word of the Lord. 
Now, I think that at some level, each one of us desires to be known. Now, I'm not saying everyone wants to be famous. Certainly, many want to be famous. But I'm saying that all of us want to feel important, useful, appreciated, that our lives matter. We want somebody to know our name and what we've done. Perhaps we even want to be praised for our accomplishments. I confess that at times, especially when I first entered the pastorate, I I felt this way in ministry. When other pastors are preaching to thousands at conferences or writing books that have their name on it, it can feel like I don't do much that matters. No one, obviously, is clamoring to hear me preach or for me to write a book. I've always preached to a relatively small congregation. Very people know my name or anything that I have ever done in my life. Now, the desire to be known, to feel useful and appreciated, to have a sense of value and that your life and work matter, that's not in and of itself sinful, but it can become sinful. The significant question, though, is who do you desire to know your name? And this is the question that I kept asking as I read about these six relatively minor judges and was wondering until very late in the week, what am I going to preach about? Now, they're called minor judges for the same reasons that we refer to some of the prophets as minor prophets. It's not that they were actually less significant or important during their day. It's simply that we have less information about them or from them. So, for example, Isaiah is a major prophet because his book is 66 chapters long. He wrote a lot. Obadiah is called a minor prophet because his book consists of 21 verses. Similarly, in the book of Judges, we have the stories of Gideon and Samson. Gideon takes up three chapters. Samson has four. But then we have somebody like Shamgar, and he gets one verse. Just one verse. I almost thought about preaching on chapter 3, verse 31. I thought, well, we'll have about three minutes, and then you all can go home. So maybe you wish that I had chosen to just preach on one verse. So what do we do with these six so-called minor judges? Is there anything that we can learn from them? Well, that's what I'll consider with you this evening. So I'm first going to just provide six sketches of these judges, and then I will offer four lessons from their lives. And finally, I will close by returning to this question of who actually knows your name. Now, there's a difference between a preliminary sketch and a final painting. A sketch is usually more of an outline drawn with a pencil. It's lacking full color and detail. A final painting will be detailed and colorful. And this is in one sense how I think about the difference between these minor and major judges. Sometimes the author gives us a full painting, like with Gideon or Samson. And other times he just gives us a brief sketch. 
In total, we're giving six of these sketches. And the first one comes in between the fuller stories of Ehud on one side and Deborah and Barak on the other. This is the sketch of Shamgar. So we read in chapter 3, verse 31, After him, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now like Othniel, Shamgar was most likely not an ethnic Israelite. But unlike Othniel, Shamgar does not appear to have become an Israelite and devoted himself to Yahweh. That he was not an ethnic Israelite is suggested first by his name. He does not have a Hebrew name. The most probable suggestion is that Shamgar was a Hurian, one of the ancient peoples in that region. And that he was not an Israelite either ethnically or religiously is also implied by his designation as the son of Anath. Now, it could be that that was just his mother's name. But more than likely, it means he was a devoted follower of the Canaanite goddess Anath. She was eventually adopted into the Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses, and she was the goddess of war. Now, some have even suggested that Shamgar was part of a known mercenary group uh, used uh, as warriors to protect Pharaoh, and this group included Hurians, and they were known as the sons of Anath. That's possible. But his weapon of choice makes me doubt that he was actually a professional warrior because he chose to fight with an ox goad. Now, an ox goad was a farming tool used to train and control livestock. Now, it was big. It could be up to eight feet long. And at one end, it was tipped with iron to prod oxen. But the fact that he used an ox goad could imply that he was just an everyday plowman. And yet, we are told that this plowman killed 600 Philistines. And the Philistines were not native to Canaan. They were a group of sea peoples that had sailed across the Mediterranean and eventually settled in Canaan. And the, word, the number 600 usually designated a full-trained regiment that was led by a commander. So this was not just a bunch of random, ragtag Philistines. And yet, Shamgar kills them all with an ox goad, and in this way, we are told, he also saved Israel. In all likelihood, he had no intention of saving Israel, but his actions ended up serving Israel's interests. Now skip ahead to chapter 10, where we read about Tola and Jair. These judges are placed in between the stories of Abimelech and Jephthah, which we'll eventually get to. Now, all we're told about Tola is that he came after Abimelech and that he also arose to save Israel. We're not told who he saved them from or how he saved them. We're not, all we're told is who his parents and tribe were, where he was from, and how long he judged, which means how long he governed Israel. And finally, we're told he died and was buried. Then comes Jer. Similarly, we're told roughly where he was from and how long he judged. 
We're also told that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities. Interesting, but you kind of wonder, who cares? Although this would indicate this was a time of relative peace, prosperity, and influence. Finally, we're likewise told that he died and was buried. Then you skip over to chapter 12. After the story of Jephthah and before the story of Samson, we get another list with sketches of three more judges. First is Ibzin. And like Tola and Jer, we are told how long he judged and where he was from. Like Jer, we're told he had 30 sons. However, he also had 30 sons, and all of his sons and daughters were married from outside the clan, which either means he got spouses from outside the tribe of Israelite, from other Israelites, or it could mean he found them spouses from all of the surrounding peoples, and none of them were Israelites. The implication, though, is again a time of great prosperity, peace, and influence. But Ibsen dies and was buried. Next is Elon, and we get the least about him. We receive some similar details as the others. We know what tribe he was from. We know how long he judged, and we know that he died and was buried. And last in the list of these minor judges is Abdon. And what's striking about him, apparently, is that he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, bringing his male descendants to a grand total of 70. However, the last word, as always, with these judges is, of death and burial. But what is the point? You should always be asking this question when you are reading through God's Word because He does not insert trivial details. What is the point of briefly listing these six judges when the author clearly does not intend to tell us very much about them? Well, first he lists them because they were real men who judged Israel and were important during this period of their history. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, it was also important for our author to have 12 judges from various tribes to indicate that this time of apostasy and spiritual decline was not reserved to one or two tribes. This was an all-Israel problem. And furthermore, framing the story of Jephthah, he said, we'll get to, very interesting story. He frames the story of Jephthah by mentioning on one side that Jer has 30 sons, mentioning on the other side that Ibsen has 30 sons and 30 daughters. This also comes in between mentioning that Gideon has 70 sons, and then on the outer end, we have Abdon also has 70 male descendants. You have 70 and 70 then you have 30 and 30, right in the middle of this structure that's called a chiasm is Jephthah who has one daughter and she is going to suffer a very tragic fate. Now we'll get to that when we get to Jephthah, but I just point that out to show you again, these details are not random, they are intentional to make a theological point. Judges is always history arranged and structured to make the author's theological points. But are there other lessons that we can learn from these brief sketches? I believe there are. Though I will admit at the outset here, these lessons really just came from me just thinking, praying over this. This is not in-depth 
commentary study. I'm not telling you that here's the meaning of the text that you are to take away. These are just lessons that I learned as I prayed about God's Word. And the first lesson that stuck out to me is that God intentionally uses weak and unexpected vessels to accomplish His salvation so that all might see that salvation belongs to the Lord. I see this especially in the story of Shamgar. For here we have a plowman wielding an ox goad who takes out 600 Philistines. That's impossible. An ox goad is a farming tool to lead oxen, and yet in the hand of Shamgar, it became a mighty weapon for salvation. But we know that the true power was not found in Shamgar. It was found in the Lord. So you might even say the greater miracle was God choosing to save Israel through a pagan plowman. The ox goad was not a weapon designed for war. Shamgar, I don't think, was a man devoted to God. And yet, in the Lord's hands, Shamgar and his ox goad saved Israel. And I think this teaches us several things. First, it teaches us that what matters most for salvation is God's faithfulness, not ours. By this I mean that God doesn't actually need obedient people to accomplish His purposes. Raising up Shamgar probably implies that this time there is no one in Israel who is following the Lord. There's not even a random Noah on the earth to do what the Lord wants. They had all turned aside. And yet, even the faithlessness of God's people could not undo God's purpose to save them. God doesn't need means to save. He simply chooses to use them. Shamgar did not serve God, yet Shamgar served God. This also teaches us that there is nothing impossible with God. Telling you. You just want to talk about human history, one man killing 600 with an ox code, that is humanly impossible. But remember what Jesus teaches his disciples when they lament that salvation is just too hard after Jesus talks to the rich ruler. And Jesus tells them what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Shamgar, I believe, reminds us of this. The story of Shamgar is an impossible story, except that with God, anything is possible. And we are to remember that salvation is always a miracle of God's grace and power. And stories like Shamgar's were just little Old Testament foreshadows always reminding God's people, for you to be saved, it's going to take a miracle. You cannot do it. I think this also teaches us that God will only save in ways that make clear He's the one who saved. God, we know, will not share His glory with another. So He will always save in a way that glorifies Him and not man. 
In other words, one thing we will repeatedly see in Judges is that God saves his people through weakness so that his strength will be manifested. This is clear through the strange weapons of salvation that we find like Ehud's dagger, Shamgar's ox goad, Jael's tent peg, and Samson's jawbone. Well, it wasn't Samson's jawbone. It was a donkey's jawbone that Samson used to again kill a bunch of Philistines. But it's even more clear through the agents of God's salvation. Like a pagan plowman, a housewife, and a cowardly idolater who we'll meet named Gideon. And this called to my mind what Paul tells the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And again, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Judges repeatedly hints at this truth. And how God would save His people. For we remember that Christ came in the weakness of human flesh, not in the full array of His divine glory. And far stranger than an ox goad is a cross as a weapon of salvation. But finally, under this first lesson, it teaches us that God can use even people like you and me to accomplish His purposes. Do you ever think, who am I? I'm weak, I'm sinful, how could God ever possibly use me? Well, God loves to manifest His power through our weakness. So you are not too small and weak for God to use. In fact, the smaller and weaker you realize you are, the better. So always be eager for God to use you and prepare for God to use you by always cultivating humility and killing foolish pride. Matthew Henry once wrote, He that has the residue of the Spirit could, when he pleased, make plowmen judges and generals and fishermen apostles. It is no matter how weak the weapon is if God direct and strengthen the arm. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is that material prosperity is not the same as spiritual peace. I get this from the lists in chapters 10 and 12. For in the stories leading up to and including Gideon, the refrain after deliverance is typically, and the land had rest for X number of years. You see that after Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak, and Gideon. But after Gideon, what you usually read is, and he, whoever the judge was, judged Israel X number of years. Now, without pressing this too far, we know that rest in the Bible usually is pointing us to the ultimate rest that we will have with God. And it seems to me that as the author shifts his language, he is suggesting in Judges that as time went on and the spiritual decline rapidly increased, there, yes, were still periods of earthly 
peace from oppression, relative prosperity. See this with the number of offspring, donkeys and cities. But there was no more rest. The judges, yes, had some power and influence. There was an absence at times in the lives of these minor judges with perhaps no oppressors that they needed to be saved from. And yet things are actually getting spiritually worse. So we need to be careful not to measure God's pleasure in us by our material prosperity or our circumstantial peace. Just because things are going relatively well, that in and of itself does not mean you have peace with God. And just because life is hard doesn't mean you've lost peace with God. Peace with God is always measured by Christ, not circumstances. Are you walking by faith in Christ? That's what matters. That's how you know whether or not you have peace with God. See, even pagans can have prosperity. Backsliding Christians can have success. Even with these judges who had many offspring, that's not necessarily an indication that God was pleased with them. For we read that Gideon had 70 sons. But then the author ominously notes this is because he had many wives. And I wonder, are we supposed to assume the same with Jer, with Ibsen, and Abdon as they have an inordinate number of sons? Maybe. But faithfulness is always measured by fidelity to God's Word. It is not measured by the circumstantial results. So do not mistake material prosperity for spiritual peace because material prosperity is always temporary. Spiritual peace is eternal. The third lesson that we learn, or at least I did, is that we need a Savior who can overcome death. What is one of the obvious problems in Judges? It's that these deliverers that God raises up keep dying. This especially becomes obvious when you have judges listed back to back, like in chapters 10 and 12. It starts to sound a lot like Genesis 5, if you remember years ago when I preached on Genesis 5. And you hear over and over, back to back to back, and he died, and he died, and he died. And coming out of the curse, this was to teach us sin is continuing to spread and the curse of sin is still there. We feel this again in Judges. For even though the deliverers and Judges could deliver from oppressors for a time, they could not ultimately deliver from sin and death. Even they sinned and succumbed to death. And so the cry that should well up in your heart as you read through Judges is, I need a Savior who can overcome sin and death and who will live forever. And this is why I hope it has been such good news in the mornings through Hebrews to repeatedly hear that we have Jesus, the eternal High Priest and Savior who does live forever. Remember in Hebrews 7, It says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You could say the same thing about the judges. The 
the judges were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And yet we are told, but he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Paul says that God gave us grace which, is, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So as you read through the book of Judges, praise the Lord that you do not have a deliverer or a judge who saves and rules for seven years or ten years or twenty-two years. You have a deliverer, a judge, and a savior who saves and rules for eternity. He has conquered the root oppressor, and that is sin. And he has overcome the eternal death that results from sin. For the deliverers and judges, the story repeatedly ends. You heard it. And he died and was buried. For Jesus, the story ends. And he died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. You need a Savior who can overcome death. Jesus is that Savior. So you may sing with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth and final lesson is that you may rejoice that your name is written down and that Christ's name is lifted up. As I said in the beginning, these judges are not minor because they were less important in their day or for fulfilling God's purposes. It's not even that their stories were less remarkable than the other stories. Can you imagine what other fascinating details there must have been with Shamgar killing 600 Philistines with an ox goat? I really want to know the rest of the story. It's no less miraculous than what we learn about Ehud or Samson. And notice that it says of Tola that he arose to save Israel, meaning he was no less an agent of salvation than Ehud was. But all we know is Tola's name. We're not given anything else about how he saved Israel. We know less than we do with Shamgar. Why? Because it's not important for us to know. The author chose the stories that most clearly made his theological points. And we know that the ultimate author of Judges is God himself. He told us what he wanted to tell us. Now you and I might be upset if we were Tola or Shamgar. We might think, shouldn't I get as much space in the story as Gideon? That puny little coward? You kidding me? Who knows? Tola may have been more faithful to God than Gideon and Samson. 
And yet, as I kept reading through these sections, which was really just reading these names over and over again and saying, Lord, help. One of the things that kept striking me was God knows their names. And He knows every single thing that they did. He knows every detail. It was true for them just as it's true for us. He knew every single hair on their head. And then I thought, well, what matters ultimately is that their names were written down. Not that their exploits were written down. Because I think of what Jesus spoke again to his disciples in Luke chapter 10. You might remember this conversation. He tells his disciples something amazing. He says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That is awesome power. That is bigger than Samson kind of power. And I would be thinking if I was given that, I want people to know that I can do those kinds of things. And yet what is Jesus say next he says nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven oh may we take that to heart christian God has done a miraculous work in you. If you are a Christian, that means you underwent a miraculous work of salvation. And you now have the Holy Spirit. There's no power like the Holy Spirit. You will be called by God to accomplish His good purposes. In your job, in your marriage, in parenting, in telling others about Jesus. But don't think that your worth is found in what you have done. Rejoice not ultimately in how God uses you. Rejoice ultimately in the fact that God knows you. He knows your name. Because he wrote it down in the book of life. That's what matters. The book of life may not include all of the stories of how God used you. But it's got your name written down. And remember, God's purpose is not ultimately to make your name known. Oh, He knows it. He wrote it down. But the history of redemption is not about people knowing your name. It wasn't about people knowing who Tola, Jer, Shamgar, and Ibsen are. Everything has been written down and accomplished so that everyone will know a different name. And that is the name of Jesus. Your miraculous salvation was to lead others to praise Jesus. Because God does everything. He aims everything to exalt the name of His Son. As Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So desire to have your name known. That's good. But desire to 
and be content to be known by God. For all that matters is that God knows your name and that it has been written down in the book of life. Some of you may be Gideons and Samsons where more people will know about you and what you've done. Others of you, probably like me, will just be a Shamgar, a Tola, or a Jer. And not many people will have ever heard of you. Tola is not high on the list of biblical baby names. So even more than you desire to be known, desire for Jesus to be known in this world. For God has given him, not you, the name that is above every name. And God saves through his name, not yours. For as Peter says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But praise be to God that he does still know your name, that he has written it down, so that on the final day you may enter into his eternal rest, which he has secured by the Savior who died, was buried, but who rose again on the third day, so that you and I could rise with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have known us. And before You ever made us, You had written our names down in the book of life. And we thank You that in any way we get to be part of Your work to exalt Christ in this world. And we pray that our lives would serve that purpose. That more people in Kalamazoo would confess the name of Jesus and bow before Him as Lord and Savior. For that is our greatest desire. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.